Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Welcome back for another month of historical education. First of all, I'd like to thank all the listeners who have recently written reviews for us on iTunes. That's very, very helpful for the show, helping us get the word out and letting all the other listeners know that, hey, we're a reputable show with a real listening audience, giving you quality programming every month. So the latest reviews came from JC Listener, Green Dog 82 and Jay LaRoe1234, thank you. Thank you very much for your input. If you haven't written a review of the podcast, please go through your podcast app. Scroll down to the bottom of the show. Somewhere near the bottom of the show, you'll see the stars listing. Click on five stars and write a review. Only takes you 30 seconds and it goes a long way. So thank you very much to everyone who has written a review so far. And now I'll get into this month's podcast. This one is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. BetOnline.ag happens to be my favorite gambling website. It is basically a source of part-time income for me. It can also be a source of part-time income for you. If you'd like to have that part-time income and you want to try your luck betting on sports teams, betting on football, basketball, College basketball coming up soon. Use the link on DerekIzzy.com. Why should you use that link? Well, because you will get 50% matching funds on your initial deposit. And I I believe this goes up to $1,000. So you can go up to $1,000 on your initial deposit and betonline.ag will match that at 50%. So if you put $1,000 down, they will give you $500 for free. So even if you do lose, you've still made out because you got 500 bucks. You get this special VIP treatment just for being a listener to The Derek Izzy Show. Use that link on DerekIzzy.com, get your 50% initial deposit match, and win some money. And now, the topic of today's podcast. Back in the 1960s, in a small town in Louisiana a town of 10,000 people. There was a girl growing up, well-known amongst her town folk. She was a homecoming queen and received several honors for her beauty. A beauty queen, everyone thought she would have success in life. Everyone wanted to be like her. She had many, many guys that were chasing after her. But it turns out only one would win her heart. In 1961, she would be swept off her feet and married. Though her husband didn't actually want children, a year later she gave birth to a son. One night shortly after the birth of her son, this beauty by the name of Mary Horton would be on a boat with her husband, allegedly fishing in a river. Her husband said, He noticed a disturbance in the water, and just like that, his wife was in the water. He said he jumped in after her, but was unable to find her. Authorities investigated it and ruled her death accidental drowning. We move on to 1969. In comes Sharon Hensley. Sharon Hensley met the man of her dreams, fell in love with him, married him, and he slowly pulled her away from her family. By 1973, it was just the two of them. 
They had pretty much cut off all ties to everyone else. Sharon and her husband had what seemed like a loving and yet very controlling relationship. Her family hadn't heard from her for a while. But this wasn't that unusual as the relationship with her husband had pulled her away from her family. She'd pretty much lost touch with most of her family members. But in 1983, Sharon's husband informed her family that she had left him. They had met an adventurous couple and she wanted to start a new life with them. She was never to be heard from again. Sometime in between all that, we have a marriage that happened around 1975 where a young wife discovers unusual medical instruments in her husband's car. She quickly files for divorce and leaves him. A couple years later, a woman named Carolyn meets the man of her dreams and falls in love with him. Within one year, she would file for divorce and leave him. Less than a year after that, a woman named Alexandra met the man of her dreams. After a crazy night of partying, they decided to get married. She began to ask questions about his first wife because he told her that his first wife had drowned in a terrible boating accident. She claims that he said he could have saved her, but he chose not to. This ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back for Alexandra. She would file for divorce and then leave. That brings us to 1981. A 15-year-old young independent musician catches the eye of an older man. He pulls up on his motorcycle. She's enthralled by his presence. And he takes notice of her. She's rebellious and independent, writing songs, playing her guitar. Her name is Annette Craver. To give you an idea of who Annette was, here's a little clip of a song that she performed. You can see she was a very talented young girl, and she fell for this older man. As with other relationships, he controlled her. He pulled her away from her family. After a few years, they decided to get married. After being married for just one year, Annette went on a trip to Colorado to visit friends. She never returned. Friends and family asked her husband for answers, and he had none, only that she had ran off with thousands of dollars she had taken. Now, Annette had inherited money after the death of her father. One of the things that she was able to do with that money was take over the house that she had grown up in. The house was owned by her mother. She was able to get the deed changed into her and her husband's name. Then shortly into their marriage, it was just in her husband's name. And now she goes missing, and he has control over the house. This infuriated Annette's mom, but there was nothing she could do. Annette had disappeared, and even though her husband had a logical explanation, nobody believed it. The son from Mary Horton, the very first woman, the son was now growing up. Growing up in a household like this, he witnessed many statements from his father. His father seemed to have really bad luck with marriage. Some might call him a serial marrier. What I call him is a serial killer. He's now in jail, convicted of murder. Fifty years after murdering Mary Horton, his first wife, the investigation, which had long been cold, was reopened and he was convicted of murder. While at the time of this podcast, we have no information on what happened to Sharon Hensley or Annette Craver, we're pretty sure that he murdered them as well. And he also would have murdered his other wives had they stuck around. 
The topic of our podcast is none other than Felix Vale. Now that I've given you a little bit of a summary of Felix Vale's life and marriages, I'm going to step aside and let the Channel 7 news take over. This episode aired on TV. You won't be able to see it because this is an audio podcast, but you'll get a clear understanding of the people involved and what they experienced. four months old, my mother uh, drowned in Lake Charles, or or so I was told uh, by my father. Just like that, it happened within one second or two at the most. Felix, what happened to Mary? So here I am, life. October 28, 1962, Felix Vail tells police his wife Mary drowned in the Calcasieu River. Was it an accident or something more sinister? And if it was murder, how would investigators prosecute a 50-year-old case? ran free. You could ride around town on your bicycle. Everybody thought the best of each other. Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir was everywhere. Uh, being polite and nice to people was the persona of where we lived. And Will Horton says his sister Mary was one of the nicest of all. She was just so kind and wonderful. I mean, she was a sister that every little boy would want to have as a big sister. the 1950s, a time when home video was more of a luxury than the norm. And while Will cherishes the scenes of happier times and family vacations, he says it's the simple things that he remembers most about Mary. I was a spoiled little brother. In particular, rainy days, couldn't go out and play. She'd get out the Hardy Boy books, the Hardy Boy mystery books, pop popcorn and read me books so I'd fall asleep. Christmas time, we had my mother saw to it that she learned how to play the piano. We had a piano in our home. She would play uh, Frosty the Snowman, Winter Wonderland, and to be like, come here, little brother. So I knew all the songs, because <laughs> I had to sing them when she played them, and we'd sing them together. The all-American family, their father, a wholesale cotton buyer, their mother, an elementary school teacher. It's a staunch Catholic family kind of thing. Uh, we had an older brother. He was 14 years older than me, so by the time I was growing up, he was out of high school and in college. But that was okay, Will says, because he had Mary. I just loved her completely. She gave me the worst tickle attacks I ever had in my life. <laughs> she was she was something special to everyone, but the blessing was that I was family. But six hours and almost a whole other world away, Mary's future husband, Felix Bell, was being raised on a farm in Clay County, Mississippi. We went to school in the same school, but uh, he was in, uh, two or three years ahead of me. But I was real friends, good friends with his brother, Ronnie, so I was around him a lot. And longtime family friend, Wesley Turnage, says Felix's actions were already raising concerns. A dairy farmer always had a lot of cats around because they had a lot of feed there and the rats would eat and no holes in the bags and get the feed out and eat up the feed and, and they kept cats around to keep the mice down. And the cats would have kittens and he would hang them up on the clothesline, throw rocks at them and kill them. He just was a psycho. 
What were his mom and dad like? Well, they were respected people. His mother was real sweet. They had a good life. He had uh, everything he needed. You know, he dressed good. He always had a vehicle to ride in and stuff. And that old skate rink just had a tin wall on it. And there's been a lot of us that fell and knocked that tin loose when we hit it. Do you know if Felix ever hung out with with people like that over? Uh, he's kind of a loner, the best that I can remember about him. I don't remember ever seeing him with a group like we do, you know. A stark contrast to Eunice High School's popular homecoming queen. She loved what she achieved, but she shared everything that she had with her friends. Mary would continue to thrive as she left her home in Eunice to follow in her mother's footsteps as a teacher. I believe it is. Yeah. But there she is. Oh. Kathy Robbins and Judy Turney were in the same sorority as Mary and lived in the same dorm. I think it was sixty-two fifty a month back then. Oh my goodness, you remember that? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. And Mary was right across the hall from me. Right next to me. Right next door to Judy. Mm -hmm. We just got to be real close friends, you know. Getting up, going to class, coming back, trying to find something to eat. And then gathering in each other's rooms, you know, and talking about the day and laughing and gigging, just typical, who we were dating and that sort of thing. And they were about to hear a story about a new man that had caught Mary's eye, Felix Vale. To hear Felix's side of that story, we'd have to go behind the walls of the Angola State Penitentiary. Be my woman, girl, I'll be your man. Be my woman, girl, I'll be your man. Be my woman, girl, I'll be your man. $15, baby, in your never met my mental and electrical equal in a male or a female, and here was this in her. So we, we recognized that on our first date. About a year before we got married in a church, we married ourselves uh, almost as soon as we met. When she let it be known to us that Felix was the one, I did, didn't go against that wish of hers, you know. If that was the one that she loved, then we loved him too. That's the way it went. Mary's sorority sisters also tried to be supportive as the relationship grew. For her, yeah. We weren't happy, mm -hmm. were we? <laughs> we didn't like Felix. Uh, I, and I can't be specific. I don't know exactly why. He was very deceitful, and he fooled her. And just a year into the marriage, Will says Mary figured it out. Well, she came home in early September of the year that she died. She died in October, and she had a closed-door session with my mama. And I believe that she said she was ready to leave him. And I think Mom said... Go back and see what you can work out. And she was dead before she came back, before she had a chance to come back. Gosh, that's an awful lot for your mom to have to do. Oh, it crushed her. It crushed her. Absolutely. Yeah. Crushed all of us. She was teaching, making money. I was working, making, you know, at that time, better than average money. And we had few debts. Our apartment and uh, I think a car note maybe. And Mary had given birth to the couple's first child and Felix's namesake, William Felix Bell Jr. They called him Bill. What? I don't know. Just the only ideal time of my life. And I'm, what, 80 now almost. But Mary's friends saw a very different picture of the marriage. 
I could tell that there were certain things that were bothering her. But then when the baby was born, it seemed mm-hmm. like she was a lot happier. And Much happier. It looked as if the advice from Mary's mother to go back and work things out was paying off. That is, until the evening of October 28, 1962. I was off from the refinery and I had had fishing lines, trot lines you call them. And so I was going out to take them up. She wanted to go with me. This was a pretty Saturday and you know she needed an outing. She was breastfeeding Bill and you know, pretty confined there when she wasn't teaching to. So uh, we just uh, rode across the lake. My boat was kept in a shed, boat shed. And we had to go all the way across the lake to get to the river under the big arch bridge there. And um, about a mile or so up the river was where I had the lines tied. So we just motored over there and I had uh, one gallon milk jugs turned upside down, tied to the line periodically as floats. And I didn't see any of them. So we went on up the river just sightseeing past West Lake a ways and uh, came back and, and didn't see any of them. So I turned the boat around and headed it back up river and was going, we were going really slow, kind of like about a slow walk speed, looking for the floats. And she was in the front. I, I was sitting on a, the gas tank right by the motor, handling it by hand manual, whatever, and she was on the uh, driver's seat up in front of the boat. We we were going north, I think north anyway. We were both looking east on the east side where the floats would be, and she said she was on her, uh, sitting on her calves and, and like this on the driver's seat and she kind of raised up and pointed um, and said there's one and just like that it happened within one second or two at the most the front end of the boat where she was there was a swirl of water about almost as big as this room circular swirl that could only happen with the river current forcing its way around something under the water. Well, it threw the boat sideways. I don't know, two or three feet, I'm not sure, but just like that and toppled her in and I shut the motor off and ran up and jumped in right where she had fallen. But this circular, whatever you call it, uh, had a suction. And it had taken her down. I, I went into the same spot that she went in, and it started pulling me down. So I was pulling with it, trying to go faster to, to catch up, and I never... I never caught. It had already taken her out of, um, you know, deeper than I could go or deeper than I went. And when I ran out of air, I came up and went down and did that until I couldn't anymore. So that's it. She was gone, and I knew the river had her, and um, when I swam downstream to where my uh, boat had drifted to. I, I, that's the closest I've ever come. That's the closest I had come until, at that time to dying because I 
had used all of my energy and my adrenaline and everything was gone and I, I only made it to the boat thinking about Bill being left with no parents. I came back across the lake and put the boat in the shed and got my car and went to the sheriff's office and filed an accident report and went to the babysitter and got Bill and just held him the rest of the night. Uh, excuse me. A lot of, a lot of looking at the questions that you asked me, and I had time to, you know, relive them in my memory. And breathe and stuff and, and it's uh I'll, I'll be all right in a couple of seconds but some of it is um pretty dramatic to re-experience and i have to do that to to talk about it and be you know let my memory rerun its tape or whatever you call it Mary's body would be recovered two days later in the murky waters of the Calcasieu River. Well, when something that, like that hits you, just everything goes black. You know, it's just, just a devastating time for our family completely. Disbelief, yeah, just unbelievable, you know. We just, oh my. It was just so unheard of, especially in that day and time. Yes. And a troubling question lingered for Mary's friends. Had a premonition Mary had in college mirrored her tragic death? Or was it a sign Felix's story wasn't adding up? I remember it in the dawn that she would die young and she would die by drowning. She was scared of the water. I thought it was most strange that she went out on the that boat. she went out on the boat. Even stranger, according to Judy, Felix's behavior as his young wife was being laid to rest. It was like it was no big deal. It was casual to him. You know, he wasn't affected like you would think a loving husband would be when his wife had just drowned. I never saw him break down and cry. I, he never came over to me and said, I, I'm so sorry. I, we shouldn't have been in the boat uh, I love you, sister, so much. Never, ever heard any type of response like that from him at all. It wasn't until later that we began to think about the circumstances and his demeanor throughout the whole process. So was it the demeanor of a guilty man or a husband facing accusations that were swirling now faster than his description of the Calcasieu River? This was something that was unusual for her to want to go out with you in the water, right? No, it was not. We, we, she went out with me in the boat all the time. When I first met her, she had apparently um, at a high school party on the lake, fall, uh, uh, part of the wharf had broken under her foot, and she had fallen and uh, I think broke a leg. I'm not sure exactly. Hurt herself pretty bad. So uh, she didn't mess around with the water after that. But she got over it pretty quickly with me. And there's more. Like why had Felix purchased a life insurance policy not long before Mary's death? Mary and I were going back to Acapulco again for our second honeymoon. And we were going within a couple of months. We had Bill now. The travel agency told told us to redo the insurance so that it would include him. Well, we had done this and had everything ready except the calendar for us to go to Mexico again. When the accident happened, this insurance man got a guy on one of the boats to say, when they found her body, that this looks like foul play to me. But that was enough to throw suspicion about the accidental 
of the, of the drowning. Being a member of the family, what would you get from that? They got that I somehow caused her death. Sometime after that, I, I was working at the refinery still, not knowing what to do next. And one day when I was clocking in at the clock house at work, here's a covey of law enforcement people to arrest me right in front of God and everybody and all of the other men that I worked with for a dramatic effect, which of course it had. So they take me in and play a good cop, bad cop game with me. We know you did it. And, and stuff, you know, just, what, 24 hours, no sleep, these guys coming at me. And finally, after whatever legal amount of time, they, they released me. From what my mom and dad said, I was too young to be a part of any decision-making, but she said that the district attorney said that things looked a little bit suspicious that just wasn't enough to go forward with. And that's how it ended for us. But it was far from over. In fact, no one realized just how far the end would really be. It was years later when they discussed the fact that he was in that ski boat. There's no way that you could run trout lines in that ski boat. It was a wooden rib boat. It sat high. And at the time, in the place that he claimed that she had fallen into the water, the river forked, and there was still a current going through there. But that side of where they relocated, where they located her body, was a commercial area. People didn't fish there. So there were a lot of things that didn't add up. Of course, there's rumors all over the refinery, and this this is what they wanted, you know, to create suspicion. So they did, and that might have been a factor in me deciding to take Bill to Mississippi. The move came despite Mary's family wanting to stay close to the only part of her they had left, the child she loved so dearly. We thought he was going to be adopted, and come to find out, he never was adopted. My mother was spoiling Bill at about three or so. She was spoiling him. I was working and going to uh, college some, and, and um, he, he was getting spoiled. So I quit the job, got in my 57 Chevy convertible, and started making circles, bigger and bigger circles, one state, two states, what looking for a place that, that I thought was a good place to raise my son. I didn't find any, and my brother was going through uh, the naval training at San Diego, and I wound up there. Bill described his unusual journey in a church podcast. My only possessions, I guess, at, at that time were a sleeping bag and a pair of shorts. I had no, no shirt, no shoes, nothing else. And very little to eat. It consisted of whatever type of orchard we were living in at the time. Uh, uh, cashews, if we were in a cashew orchard. Uh, grapes, if we were in a vineyard. But if there was one thing there was no shortage of, it was women in Felix's life. I've been in love so many times, I can't count them hundreds of times. When... Bill was small. I was looking for a replacement for her, for me, for myself, but I was looking for a mother substitute for him. There was not anybody out of the hundreds of applicants we examined. Nobody measured up to the benchmark that Mary had set. And one of those applicants, as he calls them, a free-spirited model named Sharon Hensley. How did you meet Sharon? Oh, I met her um, in San Francisco. That's when I found out the truth of, of my mother's death. And I overheard him just sobbing, which caught my attention. And he told her that he had murdered my mother. And, and I heard the, the girlfriend saying, oh, I know you must just feel responsible for it. That he, he said, no, you don't understand. I, I really did kill her. 
I just was in shock. I was too much for an eight-year-old. And I started walking right then. Um, walked two miles to the police station along the interstate and basically camped out on the front steps of the police station uh, and told them something like, uh, my father murdered my mother and he does drugs. And it uh, resulted in a multi-agency task force, um, um, you know, county, federal agencies, uh, dozens and dozens of squad cars and police cars and vehicles of all kinds surrounded the vineyard and captured them, captured my, my father and his girlfriend, and um, caught them with with enough drugs to get them arrested and to corroborate my story, at least that part of the story. Felix says the arrest was the result of an overzealous prosecutor with a personal agenda. He was going to take my son away from me, have him declared a ward of the court, and then he was going to adopt him from the court. Well, what about your son telling them that... Okay, they, they, during, during one of the times, they put words in his mouth. He didn't, I never told him anything like that, and he never said anything like that. Two detectives from Calcasieu Parish came there, and they were messing with him. They got one of the, uh, the psychiatrists, one of the four, they got him to hypnotize my son and put some uh, post-hypnotic suggestions. That probably was one of them. I don't know. M me and my son never had occasion to talk about it. Bill describes being the key witness against his own father when the case went to trial. That was terrible. That was traumatic beyond um, any description. And um, I, I believe the, the post-traumatic stress disorder um, symptoms, physical symptoms and such that I started having, I believe happened around then. I believed that my life was on the line because I truly believed that if he was acquitted and I was returned to my father, that he would kill me especially since part of Bill's testimony centered on the conversation he heard between his father and Sharon. And then, of course, the defense turned around what I said and, and of course, uh, basically said, you know, I'm only an eight-year-old. I didn't really hear what I thought I heard. The, the words I heard were, were ingrained in me, and I, I, knew, I knew what I heard. The young boy stuck in the middle of a battle no one could win his mother dead, his father now behind bars. I got returned to my grandparents and immediately went about trying to recapture the, the life I had lost. And unfortunately, that only lasted about two years. That's when Felix broke the conditions of his parole and headed back to the farm. And I came home from school one day, um, and there's my, my father and his, the same girlfriend standing in the driveway. And... Um, I really thought that he was going to kill me. And, and I got off the bus and just remembered, you know, this deer in the headlights feeling, where do I run? But there was nowhere to go. Bill says Felix told him not to worry. He didn't blame him at all. Instead, he blamed Sharon. Later used that, I think, as an excuse to murder her. Uh, when I was about 13, he came back uh, without her in, you know, basically uh, he said she would never bother anyone ever again. And I knew what that meant. When it happens the second time and the third time, you begin to wonder whether or not it's really an accident. It was back in the 60s and 70s, and people just were in and out of relationships all the time. And I've told myself, you sitting here next to a cold-blooded chip. Most people who's convicted say, I didn't do it, I'm innocent. Yeah, well, okay. Just to think of all the happiness and joy she could have brought all of us and, and all the people, the new people that would have come into her life.
1962 death of Mary Horton Vail was initially ruled an accidental drowning. While investigators weren't convinced, there wasn't much they could do at the time. After all, there were no witnesses, and the man at the center of the investigation was never brought before a grand jury. So the case just seemed to disappear along with much of the evidence. But in 2013, one of the oldest code cases in U.S. history would reemerge, along with a broader picture of the life and loves of Felix Vale. Where was the last time you saw Sharon? In Key West, Florida. We had been living in, in uh, Miami for a while, uh, managing a health food restaurant and and growing alfalfa sprouts and selling them to uh, health food stores. And, and uh, doing a little movie work. Still, Felix says, things were not good for his girlfriend, Sharon Hensley. Her mother had sent her to San Francisco to uh, get rid of an unwanted pregnancy. So I don't know how long before I met Sharon that that had happened, but uh, Sharon was having a lot of emotional um, distress about having to give up her child. Felix says the free-spirited model wanted to escape her past and her family. The plan was the witness protection plan, that, that you know, WITPRO they call it for short, uh, where you, if you just disappear, you get another name and you disappear yourself from all of your acquaintances. Some, some other place to live, another state, another country, whatever, whatever it takes. And Felix says Sharon had the means to make the plan work. She had access to money anytime she needed it, modeling or whatever. So I wasn't worried about her. I mean, you know, being able to manage herself. Felix says he moved on, continuing to add to a growing list of women to enter his life and the life of his son, Bill. He was married at least seven times that I know of. Including Annette Craver. I met Annette in Houston, Texas. 15-year-old Annette quickly caught the eye of 41-year-old Felix. The two would marry when Annette was just 17. And Felix would introduce his new bride to Bill and his wife, Janet. Bill and I had just married. <laughs> and so here we are in our 20s. He's married to a girl that's younger than me. Watching her, it was so evident that she wanted to please Felix. Looking how to please him was her all of her whole focus. It was hard to see in such a beautiful girl. A beautiful girl with more than just companionship to offer. The couple was living off of a large inheritance Annette received after the death of her father. In addition to the money, there was also a family home Annette shared with her mother. Together with the executor, we got the house put in Annette's name and and, and since there was money available, Annette gave her money or, or paid the debt off and gave her money, her mother 10000 or so, I think, and, and, and told her to leave, go live someplace else. Soon, Annette would sign the home over to Felix, and within months, she too had disappeared. Once again, Felix Bell, the last known person to see her alive. The last time I saw her, she left with some people from Canada who were going south. Felix says the only real coincidence of the two women's disappearances was that they shared a common goal. They wanted to go off the grid with their mothers. That was all. They didn't care about anybody else. They just wanted to get away from their mothers. Once again, Bill would be questioned about his father, this time by Tulsa police looking into Annette's disappearance. They asked, did I believe that he may have murdered her? And, and I said yes. While there wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest, suspicion continued to drive the headlines. Everyone, it seemed, wanted to talk to the man who on more than one occasion had accused his own father of murder. Matter of fact, I came to a point where lots of times when they would call, I would, 
I would talk to him and I wouldn't even give the phone to Bill because it was so hard for him. Bill was dealing with struggles of his own. He had always talked about wanting to meet his mom and how he wished he could have grown up with her. Depression and post-traumatic stress pushing Felix and Mary's son to the brink of suicide. I did not want to live. I mean, I, you know, my, I had been ready to go to heaven ever since I was a child. Then he was diagnosed with stage 4 esophageal cancer. Ironically, I'm probably one of the few people who, who had to contain my joy when, when I was diagnosed with that. Um, it was like, yes, I got my ticket to heaven and it's not of my doing. The last time I spoke to him, he was really in failing health. And he said, you know what, at least now I'll get to meet Mama. Bill Vail passed away in 2009 at the age of 46. While it would have been easy for the investigation into Felix to die with him, Annette's mother, Mary Rose, was not about to give up. She called me out of the blue and, and just said, um, would you be interested in writing about a serial killer living in Mississippi? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. In 2012, she would enlist the help of investigative reporter Jerry Mitchell out of Mississippi. And so we continue these conversations, and at some point she says, well, I'm going to go down and confront him. And I'm like, well, I want to go with you. That's when Mary Rose led Mitchell to the home of Felix Vale. All of a sudden she finds something and she throws it out and it clanks on the floor. It's a machete. And then she finds another machete and then another machete and then all these swords. She's throwing all this on the floor in front of me and I'm going, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Was, standing on his main property at this point. Yeah, I am. I, I didn't know if he was there or not or where he was. And... They never encountered Felix on that trip, but what Mitchell did get was a copy of Mary Horton Vell's autopsy. It was included in a mound of paperwork Mary Rose had collected during her nearly 30-year investigation, and Mitchell knew just what to do with it. He sent it to an acquaintance, famed forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Bodden known for high-profile cases, including the O.J. Simpson trial. He looked at it and basically said, yeah, this is a homicide. So I did about a 9,000-word piece uh, on him called Gone. After he appeared, I got a phone call uh, from a guy named Wesley Turnage. Wesley Turnage, the childhood friend of the Bell family, and he had a story he'd been waiting to tell. I had car trouble. And I rode to work with him one day, and everything was okay, and I rode back with him the next day. And we just got to talking, you know, riding to work, just started talking. He said, uh, my wife wants another baby. She said, we had another baby, but it'd uh, help our marriage. But said, I fixed that damn. She will never have another kid. And, and the way his facial expression changed and the way his voice changed when he started talking about her, it's like two different people just went from normal to evil just talking about her. And I told myself, you sitting here next to a cold-blooded killer. So why had it taken so long for Turnage to come forward? It bothered me, and I thought about that family down there a lot. But I didn't think that me telling them that was enough for getting anything started on him. I promised myself that if it ever anything come up about that, I would call and let them know immediately what I knew. And Wesley Turnage wasn't the only person ready to talk. I called my son's cousin because she lives in Lake Charles. He said, they're going to show an interview. So I wanted to let you know. She said, oh, honey, we're having a rosary group come to the house tonight. We're going to pray for you. So she told the rosary group, one of the ladies in the rosary group was a caregiver to Sonny Apshar and went over to his home and told him. And Sonny says, well, I know them. I rented Felix's first room when he first came to Lake Charles. I considered Mary like my little sister. And I have a copy of the autopsy, the death certificate, and all the pictures. 
Not just any pictures. Pictures of the day Mary's body was removed from the Calcasieu River. And Sonny Ike Abshire, who drove the boat during the search, had held on to the photos long after police had discarded them from evidence. Their warehouse was overflowing with evidence from the past. And they cleared out our evidence to make room for the new evidence coming in. But that old evidence was about to spark a new investigation when it landed on the desk of Calcasieu Parish District Attorney John DeRogier. Will Harton showed up with an investigative reporter named Jerry Mitchell from the Clarion Ledger, and they told me this bizarre story about uh, murder and disappearing ladies, and it was just very intriguing. I happened to be walking by Mr. DeRogier's office to get a cup of coffee, and he said, uh, hey, Hugo, come here, I got a case I want you to look at. Intriguing, yes, but Assistant District Attorney Hugo Holland says he had to look at the case through the eyes of the court. So I had to filter everything through basically the, the code of evidence and take this, this body of stuff that I had and narrow it down to what I could actually use in a court of law. And so that was really the main concern that I had. So when the DA's office here um, got with Jerry Mitchell and, and kind of smelled some smoke, it was time to see if we could find the flames. And what they found was an inferno. I gathered up an investigator and went myself and visited with Mr. Abshire to get his story. Ike said, uh, boy, I've been waiting for you guys to show up for 50-something years. I got something I want you to see. And he went back to his bedroom, and he opened a safe, and he brought us uh, a manila envelope that had the word keep written on it. And when he opened it up, it had a copy of a supplemental police report from the sheriff's office from 1963, uh, as well as the photographs of Mary's body coming out of the water. Mr. Abshire was uh, right there, the only survivor still alive at that point, who actually saw the body in the water and saw the body get taken out of the water and placed onto the stretcher. What interested me about it was um, his description of the position of the body when he saw it floating. It was almost laying straight on, it, uh, on its side not slouched over like a typical drowning victim. And I noticed in the basket when the body was loaded up onto the boat that it was laid out straight. And I asked him specifically what the condition of the body was when he first saw it in the water floating. And he said it was just like that, stretched out. And there's just something about that that troubled me. In 33 years of doing this, I've seen hundreds of drownings. And People don't drown that way. Calcasieu Parish forensic pathologist Dr. Terry Welke would see the same autopsy report that had been provided to Dr. Bodden during Jerry Mitchell's investigation. Both Dr. Welke and Dr. Bodden would also review Ike Abshire's photographs. Of course, after uh, talking to the forensic pathologists, both of them, uh, they both concluded uh, very quickly that the uh, person was dead before they entered the water. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, these were spinning a tale of murder. So she had been laying while she was stiff, face down in, on something dirty. The stains on her body uh, and, and the voids where there were no stains took on an entirely uh, a different significance as well. The scarf that was around Mary's uh, throat was three to four inches inside her mouth. I think the way he put it was, that wasn't no ladies' knot. That's the way Ike put it. And he got this current coroner to say, uh, to look at a 50-year-old black and white photograph that was taken of Mary's body when it was just fished out of the water. He looked at this photograph and he says that it had blown up and, and uh, doctored at a Photoshop or something. I don't know. So to, to make, uh, uh, to go back 50 years and, and make a murder out of an accident, they had to, they had to wipe out Dr. Avery Cook, who was a well-respected doctor who had done lots of floaters and when I talked to him after he did the, the, the autopsy on Mary, 
he said she she was in better shape than 90-something percent of the floaters he had done. But it was actually a finding on that first autopsy that helped the forensic pathologist make their determination. She had a large contusion, I want to say behind the left ear. Welke said, I don't know what killed her, but she was dead before she went in the water. Biden said, not only was she dead before she went in the water, but somebody strangled her to death. It seemed pretty clear to me that she gets banged on the head, she's knocked unconscious, then she's strangled, the body's left there for some period of time by Felix. When it turns dark, it's time to go get rid of the body. He takes the body out to the river and dumps it over the side. So there's the how, but what about the why? That's an easy motive. I'm taking out a big policy. I don't want to be married anymore anyway. I'm going to go ahead and murder her. It's also pretty easy to figure out why he murdered wife Annette Cravervale. That was money. The question is, why does he murder Sharon? Because Sharon's a hippie and she didn't have any money. According to Billy, did Felix say, hey, Billy, I killed your mother? Who's he talking to? He's talking to Sharon. Now convinced Felix was responsible for at least three deaths, investigators wanted to speak to him face-to-face. -face. We were able to send some detectives uh, to Canyon Lake. We, were, we found where Mr. Vale was living. Uh, he was living in a basically a high-fenced, kind of a small-type compound. Uh, we were able to holler at him and try to get him to come out. He did come out, but he refused to talk to us, said it was... Uh, you know, that he was being set up and, and just all kinds of, of crazy talk about what he believed was going on uh, to him. He was a victim, in a sense. Sometime in May of 2013, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, we were able to piece together enough. Uh, I think the district attorney presented it to a grand jury at that time, and we were able to, to secure a arrest warrant. Fifty-one years after Mary's death, Felix Bell was charged with murder and transported to Calcasieu Parish to await trial. I offered him a deal that would um, give him the opportunity to get out of jail before he died, although he would have to stay in jail quite a while, uh, and he declined. But the condition, of course, was that he had to tell me where the other two bodies were. No deal and no relief for the families. So once again, the case moved forward. It all of a sudden dawns on both of us. Oh, he's kind of old. He might not make it to the trial. But for his testimony about the photographs, uh, the photographs would not be admissible in the evidence. And but for the photographs, we didn't have a murder case. So at 90 years old, Ike Abshire would take the stand for his testimony to be videotaped in case he didn't make it to trial. And I want to say within three or four months of him testifying, he had passed away before the trial. So, you know, but for that perpetuation, you wouldn't be sitting here talking to me and Felix would not be um, in jail. That would be just one of the obstacles prosecutors would overcome. Another would be having the disappearances of Sharon and Annette admitted into evidence. To do that, Holland would have to go all the way back to the 1800s. There was a guy in England that was prosecuted for uh, latching on to wealthy wives, and they just happened to drown in a bathtub, and he would get all their money, and then he'd go on to another one. And so... Prosecutors in the brides and the bath case use the doctrine of chances, and that basically is, well, what are the chances that one guy marries a woman who drowns in a bathtub, and then he marries another woman who drowns in a bathtub, and then he marries another woman who drowns in a bathtub? Now, Felix is not stupid. So, so what problems did the accidental death of Mary cause him? So when he does this the next several times, at least that we know about, he makes sure we don't find the body. And Holland says an interview with another of Vale's former wives may have provided the gruesome details. Well, I mean, you know, I got to ask, like, why'd you leave him? She said, oh, he freaked me out one day. Really? Well, what did he do to freak you out? She said, well, he was messing around in the trunk of his Carmen Ghia, but he was looking over his shoulder 
to make sure I wasn't watching it. Well, I was 18 at the time. What do you suppose the only thing I wanted to see right then was? What's he doing in the trunk of that car? And so I snuck up behind him, and there was a secret compartment in the trunk, and it had a bunch of surgical saws in it. Phil says they weren't saws at all, just surgical tools called hemostats that he and his friends used to smoke marijuana. I don't have any doubt that they were saws. And I also don't have any doubt as to why we haven't found Sharon or Annette at this point. I mean, it really doesn't take a brain surgeon to put those things together. Holland says Felix's own words proved just how little regard he had for Mary. I read more than 20 years' worth of journal entries from that guy, and the one love of his life was a woman named Beth. I don't remember Beth's last name, but he never, ever, in the journals I read, wrote about Mary, ever. But Felix's words were something jurors would never hear. I was not allowed to say one word in my defense, even at the end of the trial when I realized that all of these people were going to vote me guilty. Regardless of what they had heard in the trial, they had heard this gone thing, and I'd say to my defense attorney, well, I might as well get on the stand and try to tell them the truth since nobody else knows the truth but me anyway. And they, their head almost hit the ceiling. They started, got, got in my face and started screaming, you can't do that. In one week, you will be writing you in Angola. And, and, and so I said, okay, 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 calm down, guys. And so I go back and I sit there and have them pronounce me guilty and, and watch the judge bite his lip to keep from grinning when he's saying life. So here I am, life. I don't know. Until the truth comes out, yeah, here I am. Felix claiming even the judge was tainted by Jerry Mitchell's report. He had already gotten together with John DeRogier and said, give him to me. I'll put him in Angola for you. And he did. While Felix only stood trial in the death of Mary, the verdict considered a victory for all three families. Felix, meanwhile, maintains his innocence. Most people who's convicted say, I didn't do it, I'm innocent. Yeah, well, okay. Do you feel like you'll ever get another trial? I don't want another trial. I want them to drop the, the bogus charges that were made against me to start with. And if I had another trial anywhere in Louisiana, it'd probably be a repeat of the first one, which was just a... Uh, I don't know what to call it, like a, a high school drama club play or something. It, it was, it, I sat through the whole thing watching it, trying to keep from shaking my head, just like all these performers, one after the other, getting on the witness stand, trying to remember what they are supposed to say and, and stuttering and, well, I, uh, I don't remember exactly. I think there was something about a paddle uh, you know, I mean, obviously coached and trying to remember what they were supposed to say. Being paid for it with free uh, weekends in the, in the casinos and free round, free round trip airplane rides from California or Florida or wherever they were coming from. I mean, I don't know. All of them were paid and coached, I know. 30-something, probably I lost count. And the whole trial, not one, in my defense, and I was not allowed to say one word in my defense. But investigators say, although it took a lifetime, the truth has finally come to the surface. Is there anything else that you want to say to these families? To these, to families, no, not at all. Not a single word. I said everything that I thought that, that I could um, to you know, to explain to them why their daughters wanted to get away from them. And um, apparently they didn't understand them. If you, if you were to live out your life here in Angola, would you die with a clear conscience? I have one and I've never had any other kind. I've lived my life trying to learn and, and uh, play, learn and play.
that's my main objectives in life, and it still is. His only regret, Felix says, not being able to sit down for a conversation with Will. I sympathize with him still and would like to talk with him, but I don't know if that'll ever happen. I reached a point in my life where I said, there's not going to be any hatred. I'm not going to... I've just reached a point where I just have no feelings for Felix whatsoever. And I know Mary would have much preferred that than me to be burning with hate and, and ugliness and all that kind of stuff. So I've, I've just put it away. Reflecting instead on the undying love between a mother and son. My whole heart and soul wanted him to know how wonderful his mom was. And uh, that was so important to me. As for Felix Bell, he remains behind bars at Angola State Penitentiary, where he's serving life in prison, sentenced to hard labor. Recently, the Louisiana State Supreme Court rejected Bell's attempt to overturn an appeals court ruling upholding his conviction and sentence. big thank you for the Channel 7 News, all their work and reporting that they put into this, putting this whole story together in the, with the interviews. Remember to go to DerekIzzy.com, click on the betonline.ag link and get your 50% matching bonus on your initial deposit and write a review on iTunes. Those reviews help the show. They help us grow. They make the audience understand that this show is worth your time. So thank you to all who have written reviews. Once again, thank you for listening to this month's episode because now you know the rest of the story. Good day.